The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel, he called Bateshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10, and it's just one verse, 
verse 16. That's on page 815 of your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, if you are new, welcome to Redeemer. So glad you're here. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm, I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. And by way of orientation, it'd be good for you to know that today marks our fall kickoff. Uh, so many things are restarting either today or, or this week. Uh, small groups are restarting this week. There's 34 different small groups that are launching all over uh, the city on weekday evenings. Our youth fellowship relaunches on Wednesday evening uh, of this week. Our Redeemer's Kids classes kick back off this morning. Uh, that's where the kids are right now. Our college ministry uh, restarted last week. Uh, our Young Adult Fellowship has their first Friday gathering this week. So many new things. And in the midst of all of this, we're also, I think appropriately, going to begin a new sermon series as well on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're going to call this series, Faithful Presence in the City. Faithful Presence in the City. And through this series, we're going to ask one very simple question. What does it mean for us to embody the presence of Jesus in Richmond in our time? What does it mean for us to embody the presence of Jesus in Richmond in our time? Uh, Let me begin by saying a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So uh, speaking of new things, when you join a new group, uh, there's always this pressure to fit in with the new group, right? I know that you guys know this. And this is true for you, kind of really no matter who you are and what age you are. Like it's true if you're starting uh, a new school year, as I know so many of you uh, young people are. Like you might be starting sixth grade for the first time, uh, or maybe going into middle school or high school for the very first time, or perhaps a new year of college or a new graduate degree program, either at University of Richmond or at VCU. You're a new student in a new environment, new teachers, new classmates, and you're going to feel, even without anybody saying anything, this pressure to like conform and to fit in and belong, right? It's also true if you're an adult and you've moved to Richmond for the very first time. If that's you, welcome. I know a number of you are are new to the city. Glad you're here. You feel the newness of this place. And you're trying to, right now, you're like trying to get a handle on what Richmond is. And you're like, I know it's not New York. I know it's not like San Francisco. Like, what is this place? And you're trying to figure out what it means to fit in here. I get it. Others of you, uh, and you've told me this over the past couple weeks, you've just started a new job. And so you've got a new boss, or you've got new coworkers, and you're trying to scope out what it means to be a part of that group and how do you fit in. Or, or some of you, I know, actually moved neighborhoods this summer. Some of you have actually moved from uh, some of the out surrounding counties into the city, and you're trying to get to know this new neighborhood and the new neighbors, and you're getting to know all the quirks and traditions and rhythms. And I know one of you has recently bought a house on Hanover Avenue, and you didn't know what happens on Hanover Avenue on Halloween. And you are just finding out that there are expectations for you and the way that you will decorate your home. Good luck. Um, And if that doesn't describe any of you, then this will, um, which is that this place is new for you. Redeemer is new. 
And that's true for everybody in the room because this, this body, this, this community has only been around for five years. So even those handful of us who have been here since day one, we're still new and we're still getting to know each other. And so if you're new and you're visiting for the first time, you really don't have that much catching up to do. We're all new. And when you're in a new place, you feel these pressures to conform and to fit in and to belong, and you kind of got to figure it out. Now, what's interesting about that is that the social pressure to conform, to assimilate into a group, is, I think, actually one of the most powerful experiences or forces that any of us will, uh, will navigate as human beings. And in fact, there is a really fascinating sociological study that happened a number of years ago, actually back in 1951. There's a researcher named Solomon Ash who led the scientific study on the pressure of conformity. And he designed a very simple experiment. Some of you actually probably have heard of this. Um, a person is brought into, into a room and they are shown two different diagrams. One diagram has just a vertical line. That's it. The second diagram has three vertical lines of different lengths. And one of them is the same length as the first one, and they're labeled A, B, C. And the person who's being experimented on is asked a very simple question that any of us would pass with flying colors. Which one of these three lines is the same length as the first one? And the answer is C. So if we had did this, we would all get this correct. It's very obvious. not a very difficult experiment. Uh, then part two happens. And like nine other people are brought into the room. So there's 10 people total and they all sit in chairs like in a group. And the researcher asks all of them the exact same question. Only these nine new people are plants. They are like in the know. They're in on the experiment. And they have been instructed to answer incorrectly and to say A instead of C. And so the researcher goes down the line. Which one of these matches the first one? And just like clockwork, they say A. A, 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 until you get to the person who was asked the question earlier, the one who's being experimented on, and you know what they say 75% of the time? A, they switch their answer. None of the data has changed. The truth that they know has not changed, but the social pressure of the group has forced them to conform, to assimilate. And it, this actually uh, totally like boggled the minds of the researchers. They were astounded that that many people were willing to change their answer and to say what they knew to be untrue just in order to fit in. And so the researchers did some like debriefing with some of these people that had done, done the experiment. They're like, what on earth? This is very troubling. Turns out nobody cares about truth. Everyone just wants to fit in. And so they asked these people questions. Why did you change your answer? And a few of them like tried to play it cool and say, well, I changed because I, I figured I probably just misunderstood the directions. Yeah, right. Everyone else answered a little more honestly and said, I just didn't want to look stupid. I just wanted to fit in with the group. And the reality is that as much as we would all like to think of ourselves as like the bold and brave few who like, no, we would give the right answer no matter what everybody else says, actually the data doesn't support that. Most of us would change our answers depending on what other people around us are saying and thinking and believing. This desire to fit in, to belong, to assimilate, to conform to the group is actually part of what makes us human beings, as human beings are social creatures. And as Americans, you and I might proudly crow our independent individualism all day long, but only if everybody else is doing it too, right? Which is why when we celebrate 4th of July, Independence Day, we all do it the same way, right? Just let that sink in for a minute, okay? <laughs> this pressure to assimilate, 
and the dread of being an outsider is actually one of the major themes of the biblical story. Like the biblical story dignifies that, that tension, that experience. Think about it. The biblical story begins with creation. Human beings are made to belong, to belong with God in his presence and to belong with the land, like where God's presence is. And then through the fall into sin, human beings are exiled both from God's presence and from the land. And God's people begin to wander. And we see this uh, when God's people are enslaved in Egypt, when they wander after being freed from Egypt in the wilderness for 40 years, when they enter the promised land, but then conquered like some by the Assyrians, some by the Babylonians, i.e. Daniel chapter 1. And then even after being exiled in Babylon, they return, but then they're conquered again by Rome. In fact, for most of the biblical story from beginning to end, God's people are a small minority who don't have a lot of power, and they have to navigate what it feels like to be pressured to fit in and conform to what their neighbors and the surrounding cultures and societies are doing. And the story of the Bible actually dignifies that tension, and then into that tension comes Jesus, who brings God's presence to his people. And the church that Jesus establishes continues to live in this wilderness season, this exile season, as pilgrims and strangers and sojourners. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. And the biblical story culminates in this new creation where God's presence and God's land and his people are all finally reunited and reestablished together. And so, listen, the story of the Bible is, amongst other things, the story of humanity's search for a home and the futility of trying to make that home anywhere other than God. And into that big story, we have our text this morning from Daniel chapter one. And in this text, we see like a microcosm of that tension that you and I have to navigate and live in every day. Now, we're starting a sermon series on the book of Daniel, and so we need to say a few things about this. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, Christopher J.H. Wright, has this to say about the book of Daniel. Question. What does it mean to live as a believer in the midst of a non-Christian state and culture? Answer, the book of Daniel tackles this problem head on. A major theme of the book is how people who worship the one true living God, the God of Israel, can live and work and survive and even thrive in the midst of a nation and a culture and a government that are hostile and sometimes even life-threatening. Now, some info that you need to know about the book of Daniel. It's... uh, written in the 6th century BC. The author is this man named Daniel, whose, whose name means God is my judge. And God sends the empire of Babylon to conquer Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. And this conquering is actually an act of judgment by God against his own people. And so God is working in and through King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon to bring judgment on his own people for their disobedience. Now, if you look at the liturgy you received when you walked in, you'll see a piece of artwork there. And if you give it your attention for just a moment, you'll see that the faces and the postures of the people in this painting are grief-stricken. They are emotionally shattered. And it's because this is a a kind of a visual depiction of the countenance of God's people after Jerusalem was sacked and all of these folks are being led away, deported into exile in Babylon. And the feeling of these people would be God has abandoned us, our city and our culture and our whole way of life has been obliterated and everything we know and love is gone. And we're being sent off to be basically, you know, slaves and exiles in a strange land. 
there's no hope left. Like this is, this is like the lowest of lows for God's people. But a really interesting thing happens right after this moment, which is that King Nebuchadnezzar, this emperor of Babylon, has an interesting idea. He thinks to himself, now rather than exterminating these, these people, I think it would be better if actually we turned them into us, meaning we need to culturally assimilate these Judeans, these people from Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem. And so he commands members of the Judean royal family and the nobility, like the cream, the upper crust, like the intelligentsia, these, these leaders who are young. He says, I want the good-looking people, the skillful people, the smart people, the well-educated, the competent. I want all of them brought to, in a sense, Babylon University. And we're going to enculturate them in our beliefs and our way of life so that over time, There won't be Israelites anymore. There will just be us. They will become us. Now, into the thick of that devastating judgment and the horrific experience that that was for the Judean people, God actually sends his prophet Jeremiah to speak some very mysterious and surprising words into that situation. So God speaks through his prophet to his people and has this to say. When you get to Babylon, build houses live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. No God follower would have expected God to say something like that. They might've expected him to say something like, uh, this is your punishment. You deserve this. Or God might say something like, Uh, don't worry, I'm going to use you to overthrow Babylon. Or actually, when I send you there, this is a test. You need to like, you know, keep your distance from all things Babylonian culture for the entirety of your time there. And if you can prove to me that you can do that, then maybe I'll bless you later. God says none of these things. Instead, God commands his people to make their life in Babylon. And that as they seek the welfare of these new neighbors, who, by the way, have just killed all their friends and it's like brought them with them as captives. If you seek their welfare, actually in that setting, that's where you're going to thrive. That's where I'm going to be with you. You know, there's this famous verse from Jeremiah that people love to print on coffee mugs and give to high school graduates that goes like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I'm so sorry to ruin this verse for you, but it is not about high school graduation. It is not about what college you go to or like this future job or future spouse or like some like, you know, career that you're going to have. It's about going to Babylon. It's about life as you know it being over and you going to live as a small religious minority in a great big pagan empire. And that actually in that context, God promises to be with you and promises that he has a future for you. So God has plans for his people in Babylon. And as we'll see, God actually does some of his best work in Babylon. And you and I do not live in Babylon, right? But we do live in this secular, materialist, humanist age in which being a faithful follower of Jesus places you as a small minority without very much power or agency in the world. And so the situation of a follower of Jesus today is not wholly dissimilar from the situation 
of a Jewish person or an Israelite who is deported to Babylon and must make their life in a city where they don't have very much agency or power. And the temptation is to think, unless I live in a Christian culture, my faith can't thrive. And actually, Jeremiah and the book of Daniel come to us and say, that's not true. Actually, it's when you're a weak minority that God is actually going to work in you and through you. So the first step in that, this is like what the whole book of Daniel is about. And the first step in that, that we see in Daniel chapter one, step one for God's people is how do you navigate cultural assimilation? How do you navigate this? When you step into that kind of environment, how, how, do you, how are you wise? How do you strategically navigate that sort of thing? And as we look at Daniel chapter one, we're gonna see it looks like adoption, adopting the culture. It also looks like resisting, resisting the culture. So there's adoption and there's resistance. And if you, uh, I think you might find it helpful to have the text open in front of you as we look at it. So if you can, take the Bible out again, turn to Daniel chapter one. We're gonna take a look at some of these verses. First, adopting the culture. How do Daniel and his friends adopt the local culture of Babylon? Well, first, and probably most obvious, they relocate. At some point, they put down their swords and they stop fighting. They realize that this is part of God's will for their life. And they allow themselves to be taken into exile. I would imagine that was hard, right? (laughs) Hard to put down your sword and stop fighting. Hard to believe that God's will for your life might actually be to lead you into a place where things are going to be more difficult and not so easy. And when all the social pressures around you are going to be against your faith rather than fostering your faith. And yet they realize this. So they stop fighting and they allow themselves to be taken into exile. Then they are renamed. Did you notice that part of the story? Very interesting. That's kind of one of those parts of the biblical story that we, we always tend to skip over the naming parts of the Bible, right? Especially in the Old Testament because they're hard to say and pronounce. But the renaming part of this is very significant because these Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these are names that each point to Yahweh God. I mean, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And these new names they receive Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these are not neutral names. These are not Hebrew names translated into Babylonian. No, these are names that point to Babylonian deities. They are religious names. They are pagan names. And so this would be something like, you know, your family is captured and taken away, and like your son Christopher is renamed Krishna, right? Like after the Hindu god. Or like Matthew is renamed Muhammad, right? Or like Katie is renamed Kardashian, right? So do you guys not know? Like Kardashian is the deity of Los Angeles. You guys know this. Um, so right, these are like religious names. They're not just linguistic. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a relocating, there's a renaming, and then there's a studying. They study the literature and the language of the Chaldeans for three years. And this is not like just kind of going to a public school or like going to university at U of R or VCU. It's so much more difficult for a Hebrew in this sense because to study the literature and language of the Chaldeans is to immerse yourself in pagan astrology. You have to do things like study the intestines and guts of sacrificed animals in order to divine the future. You work on spells and potions. I mean, as I looked at this and read it this week, it sounds a lot like Hogwarts. Like, very interesting stuff. Kind of weird. But all things that would have been abhorrent for a Hebrew all the things they're not supposed to study. And not only do they study, not only do they show up for class, but they excel. They're not just auditing this. They are graduating top of their class. Quote, 
in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So they don't just study and learn. They actually excel. They really go full throttle on this. And it it makes us probably pause and just wonder to ourselves for a moment. Where do you and I need to culturally assimilate to Richmond more than we already have? Are you really all in on this place and in this time? And I ask that because um, I don't know if you've ever asked a question like this to a group before, but uh, one of my favorite questions to ask when you are know, like, doing an icebreaker with a group is, if you had any era to live in, which one would you pick? And I ask this because I have a very personal answer that is very important to me, which is I continue to be angry and also disappointed that I was not born in the age of exploration. Like, Lewis and Clark didn't wait for me, and I'm still kind of mad about it. (laughs) There is part of me that actually genuinely wishes I lived in a different time, in a different place. I feel out of step with, with this moment in history sometimes. And yet, the call here in Daniel chapter one is actually to be fully present where you are and when you are. Are you trying to live like you're in a different place and it's a different time? Is that holding you back from things like joining your neighborhood association or like volunteering with the local school PTA? You know, some of us have this notion in our minds that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to like resist cultural assimilation on all fronts. Like to create these kind of Christian enclaves where you can, kind of, you can like be separate from the rest of society And therefore, in that separateness, kind of recreate a version of like Christian utopia so that you're like not polluted by the society around you, right? Is that what Daniel and his friends did? Did they go to Babylon and did God say to them, now when you get there, I want you to set up like a little Jewish synagogue with your own Jewish schools and I don't want your kids to listen to any Babylonian music, right? That's not it, y'all. They were to immerse themselves in the local culture. Now, others of us adopt far too much. And if if we could excavate like the substance of our lives, we would see that actually our lives and the life of the average secular materialist humanist in the city of Richmond in 2022 are virtually identical. There's really nothing distinct about us. So some of us tend to fall off the horse on different sides, depending on your personality and your own life story and kind of where you are in your faith right now. There are multiple ways to be wrong on this. But the call here in the first part of the story is to be fully present in Babylon. Now, this story is not just about adopting, it's also about resisting. So let's talk about that part. How do Daniel and his friends resist? Well, first off, his resistance was private and personal and not public. Did you notice that part of the story? It's like a stray detail that you gotta pay attention to. Daniel goes to the guy who's in charge of his Babylonian re-assimilation program (laughs) and says, hey, like, let me talk to you. Uh, I, me and my friends would prefer not to eat the food from King Nebuchadnezzar's table. We'd prefer to eat different food. Is that okay? He's asking for permission. It would be a mistake to interpret this as Daniel taking a stand. He's not taking a stand. It's not public. He's not making a scene. He's not drawing a line and saying, now look, I'm a Christian or I'm a God follower. And therefore, I can't like be bad like you guys. I'm righteous, you're unrighteous, me, you. Do you see the difference? Me, you. All right, now that we're clear on that, would you like to become a God follower, right? (laughs) Not what he does. Instead, 
he very privately and quietly asks in a very deferential way for permission to do something else. And he, and he, he allows there to be a testing in that. Let's see how it goes. Let's see if it works. Because he's communicating to the guy who's leading this program, I'm not trying to rebel against your whole like Babylonian assimilation agenda here. I'm just saying we could do this a different way. Now, he is given favor. He gets permission to do this. And I think it's probably worth us asking, why, does, why do Daniel and his friends pick this particular thing to resist? They didn't resist the relocating. They allowed themselves to be taken into exile. They didn't resist the renaming. They allowed themselves to be renamed after Babylonian gods. So strange. But they did resist eating from King Nebuchadnezzar's table. Why? Well, was it about calories? Like, let's be careful and not to put too much of our 21st century, like, food dietary lens on this. Like, some people read this and like, oh, Daniel's gluten-free. That's, no. (laughs) If that's your interpretation, see me afterward. We have much to discuss. Um, no, it's not caloric, and it's not, it's not even necessarily dietary. Um, it's not so much about this food being sacrificed to idols and Daniel and his friends not wanting to, you know, sort of break Levitical law on this. That would, be a, that would be a misinterpretation. Rather, this is about the source of provision. This is about where do you get your life. And the reason why Daniel and his friends drew the line here, why they chose this place to resist, is they were saying... Look, by refusing to eat the king's food with our bodies, we're saying my body lives here, my body works here, but my body is sustained by God and not by King Nebuchadnezzar. My body and my life, the source of my well-being and my welfare actually comes from the Lord and not from the king. So I'll serve here and I'll study here and I'll work here and I'll seek the welfare of the city. I'm all in, but my life is coming from God not from this system that I'm a part of. And as we think about that and consider our own time, we might begin to imagine questions like, where do you and I need to resist cultural assimilation today? Where might we do some of this resisting? And, and if you just think about the nature of the city of Richmond and the values and practices and culture of this place, I'm sure we could creatively think of together a number of places of potential resistance. Here are just a few. If you're new to Richmond, here's something you need to know. Richmond is a city that devalues some people's lives under other lives. Devaluing infants over adults, devaluing people of some races under others, especially people of color, devaluing immigrants, devaluing women. And should the church go along with a kind of cultural assimilation and adopt the like infanticide and racism and anti-immigration, like all of that stuff that's already a part of Richmond, it was here way before you and I got here, should we assimilate into that? And we might say, no, this, this is a point of resistance. This is a point where based on human beings being made in the image of God, we say, no, we will resist. Richmond is a city that continues to embrace the digital revolution that is using technology to replace so much of human life and work in the physical world. Will the church go along with that cultural assimilation? We might say no. That could be a point of resistance. The church resists the city by insisting on the dignity of the material world and the goodness of human bodies and human presence. Richmond is a city that has, for decades, like contributed massively to the pollution of the James River and the Chesapeake Bay, which is no small thing for the welfare of our country. 
Should we go along with this or might we resist? Might the church actually resist and actually say, no, we value creation care because the material world is dignified by our God and therefore we cannot go along with this part of the culture. Now, as we think about those, I'm I'm sure all of us have three, four, five, six different other ways that we would want to be added to the list. And you might be a little upset right now that I didn't say your thing. That's okay. I'm not undignifying your thing. But think about this. Resisting in too many places will limit your ability to be fully present in the city. It cannot be a stone wall of resistance across all fronts. Too often, we are trying to make Babylon into Jerusalem. That was not the call for Daniel and his friends, and it's not our call either. In a different way, in fact, in entirely the opposite way, um, sometimes we resist, but we resist with a completely different tone or posture than the way that Daniel and his friends resisted. Please draw from this, not only, the, not only a, resi- a posture of resistance, but also the gracious tone with which Daniel and his friends resisted. Deferential gentle, not taking a public stand. I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand, I'm not saying it's never appropriate to take a public stand as a follower of Jesus. There are appropriate moments for that. But too often, we tend to mistake almost every place of disagreement as another opportunity to take a stand. And that would be a mistake. And we get the tone wrong so often. So if you're paying attention up until this point, you might be feeling a a bit confused or perplexed or maybe just overwhelmed by the complexity of navigating cultural assimilation. So if you're thinking to yourself at this point, this sounds very complicated. It sounds like it takes more wisdom than I have to navigate this well. How do we strike this balance? How do we assimilate in good ways that help us to be fully present, but how do we resist in healthy ways that help us to maintain our faithfulness? Listen if you can. The incarnation of Jesus is the perfect embodiment of faithful presence in the city. Just as Daniel was sent to Babylon to seek its welfare, so Jesus was sent to us to seek our welfare. Just as Daniel assimilated into Babylonian culture, listen, it might sound strange, maybe you've never heard, heard it put this way before, but so Jesus assimilates into our culture. He takes on a human body as a brown-skinned Jewish person, and he grew up and worked and played and ate and drank and sang and danced and served and loved and lived a fully human life, fully present here with us in our world, in our ways. But just as Daniel resisted, fully assimilating by refusing to eat from Nebuchadnezzar's table, so Jesus fully resisted fully assimilating by refusing to draw his life from any place other than God the Father. We see this over and again in the life of Jesus as we read through the Gospels. We see it in his temptation in the wilderness where Jesus resists the temptation of the devil saying, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The language isn't too similar to Daniel chapter one, but if you know your Bible well, you would see in this moment of temptation for Jesus a recapitulation of the moment of temptation for Daniel and his friends. Where will you get your life? From whose table will you draw your sustenance? Will it be from God or will it be from somewhere else? You see, Jesus is the true Daniel. Or rather, everything good about Daniel, everything heroic about Daniel, only foreshadows what is true and good and fully right about Jesus. 
And this is why you and I actually don't have to say to each other, be like Daniel. You don't have to say that. In fact, don't say that. And if we were going to go old school for a moment, we would say, don't say to one another, dare to be a Daniel, right? Some of you who grew up in church like 50 years ago know that phrase. You actually don't have to say that to one another. And actually, you do not have to apply the pressure to yourself to read Daniel chapter 1 and try to like, using some sort of bizarre algorithm, figure out from that how to navigate our current cultural moment. Rather, you can look directly to the person and work of Jesus as the fullest, most perfect embodiment of what it means to be faithfully present, present in all of the right ways, and yet faithful in all of the true ways. When we read the story of Daniel chapter 1 and his friends being deported to Babylon, we see in it the story of Jesus coming to us for our good, for our welfare. And we realize in that that we are being sent somewhere as well. That we are not being sent to Babylon in the 6th century like Daniel or to Jerusalem in the 1st century like Christ. We are being sent to the city of Richmond right here, right now. Therefore, listen if you can, Redeemer is to be the incarnational presence of Jesus here in the city of Richmond. We are to adapt to our context and our locale in all manner of ways, but to do so drawing our life from God through Jesus exclusively. That's how you strike the balance. That's how you are both shrewd and innocent, as our gospel reading, one sentence reading from Matthew put it just a minute ago. By adopting and assimilating into the culture, but never finding your life anywhere other than Jesus. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, that seems right but very abstract. How will I know whether I'm doing that or not? Y'all, this is why every time we gather as a church, we come to the Lord's table. Because in that act, as you come forward with open hands to receive bread dipped in wine and to hear those words, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are doing something with your body in that moment that is akin to what Daniel and his friends were doing in Babylon all those years ago and what Jesus himself was doing in the wilderness where you're saying, this is my life. This is where I get life. And I'm going to have to leave this place and I'm going to have to go and assimilate in all kinds of ways that make me uncomfortable into the city of Richmond in order to be fully and faithfully present to my neighbors. But I'm not going to find my life there. I'm going to find my life through God in Jesus. Now, as you meet with your small groups this week, there are 34 small groups launching all over the city this week. And as you gather with each other around kitchen tables and in living rooms, and as you ask each other questions about this, here are some things you might think about. You might think about asking each other things like, hey, where do you feel the pressure to conform? Do you feel it in your school or in your jobs or in your neighborhood or in your friends or maybe even in your own home? Where do you feeling this pressure to conform and to change and to assimilate and fit in? And where might it be wise and shrewd for you to go along? Where might it be wise and shrewd for you to be more present in those places than you already are? And where might you resist? Where might you resist the pressure to conform? And would that resistance enable you to be more faithful in your presence? And y'all, as you talk about this with each other this week, this is going to take on a different shape for different people in different stages of life who work in different fields. There's going to be some 
diversity and plurality of answers given in your small groups this week. And so please remember, if you can, the book of Daniel is not a field manual that, dis- that like prescribes with specificity the way in which every Christian in every situation will navigate cultural assimilation. That's not what that book is. Therefore, you should expect to hear from one another a variety of convictions expressed in your small group. And you might simply listen with humble curiosity, learning from one another, oh, that's what it means to be faithfully present in your field or in your neighborhood or in your school or in your class. Y'all, let's conclude if we can. As you and I make our lives together here in the city over the coming days and weeks and months and years and maybe even decades, we are all going to feel this pressure to conform and assimilate and to fit in. And in order for us to be fully and faithfully present as followers of Jesus here in the city in our moment, in our age, we have to adopt much of what it means to be a true local. As Tim Keller says, Christians are to be the best citizens of their cities. But in order for you and I to be faithfully present with Jesus in the city, we're going to have to resist the temptation to draw our life from any place or anyone or anything other than Jesus himself. Let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that though you have led us to many hard and difficult places, and even though many of us are still on the fence about whether we want to make our life here in Richmond, Lord, you have promised to be with us and that we might continually, no matter what, draw our life from you. Would you help us to be both wise and innocent as we navigate what it means to make our life here in the city and to do so being fully present to our neighbors while drawing our life from you. Help us to do this, we pray. In your name, amen.